You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. This morning's scripture reading comes to us from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 18 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowd marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks, Paul. At this time, let's pray, and then let's spend some time reflecting on this passage. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we are a people who are quite prone to being distracted. There's much to think about, much to daydream about, much to worry about. Father, it's also just hot in here, and it's hard at times to pay attention, and so we ask now that you would give us great skill by your Holy Spirit to hear your word, and that in hearing your word, this wouldn't be just a mere academic exercise, but we would hear, and in a very real way, see this Jesus portrayed here, your Son, our Lord, our elder brother, and we would know him more deeply as a a Savior for us, and we would understand what it would mean to bond with him in faith. So we ask, Father, that you speak clearly through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, one author that I've taken great interest in 
uh, is Yuval Harari. Does anyone know this name? He's a uh, history professor at the University of Jerusalem. And he's kind of a public intellectual and thinker who's frequently cited as commenting on things. Um, I've quoted him before in the sermon, and it's in part because a neighbor down the street uh, suggested that I read this book and told me it would help me understand his view of religion. And so uh, with my neighbor, I read this book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, published in 2014. And in many ways, uh, if I'm honest with you, well, this neighbor's moving, so they're, they're going to move to another neighborhood, so they're dead to me. But uh, if I'm honest with you, I found the <laughs> book somewhat condescending. Uh, as a historian, he sort of argues for this naturalistic view of, of how religion came into being, especially uh, the Old Testament, because he's writing out of Israel and sort of helps process how this, this sort of idea of God sort of was birthed into existence and how it carried civilization along for a period. I found it a bit frustrating. He released a second book, and my neighbor wanted me to read it with him as well. And by this point, I was sort of in deep with my neighbor, so why not? This book was called uh, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. It was published in 2016. And in this book, uh, Dr. Do- Dr. Harari uh, sort of gives his projections about the future, where he sees sort of his theory about where we've come in the past moving forward into the future. And in, in that book, he writes this. He writes, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but the last few decades we've managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they've been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war. And we usually succeed in doing it. His argument was we no longer needed God, and in reality we had become sort of the projections of God that we once longed for. Again, this is 2016. And you know, I'm, maybe I'm overly sensitive, but I did find it somewhat offensive that my neighbor wanted me to read this book with him and sort of took a slam at a lot of what I value in life, but I stuck with it. And then I thought, I wonder what Dr. Harari thinks about I don't know, a pandemic, which seems to have been made worse by globalism, and a war raging, a couple of wars actually raging, one which we frequently see on the news, others that we don't often see. I wonder what he thinks about these things. I wonder if his vision for the future is as hopeful. I wonder if he still thinks that we can become the gods we always projected. We can answer our own prayers, so to speak, through the means of technological advancement. And much to my surprise, and much to my chagrin, and my joy to email my neighbor, uh, Dr. Harari now has changed his tune, and in fact, he has become one of, one of the leading, or at least from the best I can tell, he has, has been one of the lead, uh, leaders in some great fear about AI. He's convinced that AI might be able to concoct such a religious experience and an understanding of religion as it sort of synthesizes the best of human thought, that AI might have this way of sort of deviating humanity from this sort of hope-filled future. And if anything, he's kind of become a sort of voice of despair, talking about the end of democracy and the end of society in general. He's frequently writing these small pieces. He has some hope that maybe government can regulate AI, and he's pleading for this, but he's not confident it's going to matter because he thinks AI will outsmart our government in no time. Now, why do I share this? I don't share this to pick on Dr. Harari or to rub it into my neighbor that I thought his hopeful optimism was misguided and naive though there is some element in which I am kind of doing a victory lap even by sharing it to you. (laughs) But I share this because we all put our hope in something, you know? It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. We 
We have to have something, some idea, some, some picture of the future with which will give us confidence to move through difficult seasons and, and to move out into difficulty and trouble in hopes that something better will come down the road. You know, maybe one way to think about what I'm trying to say is this, is that Dr. Harari had faith in human advancement, especially the role technology was going to play in this. And he found that that faith was misguided and it was in the wrong place, and now he has become something of a prophet of despair. You know, we've got to have faith. This is essentially what I'm trying to argue. So was George Michael, but I, I'm taking it from him. We've got to have faith. And we're all searching for something with which uh, we, can, we can project into the future some, some sort of glimpse, some sort of insight so that we can know how to navigate and move through these sort of things. And listen, Matthew is, in this gospel, he's stacking up these stories of the healings, and we've looked at them in the past couple of weeks. He's, he's giving it to us sort of in rapid-fire motion, and he's not giving us uh, sort of all the details. You know, Jesus' presence on the earth was something like a magnet. All these demonic forces and sick people are kind of, are kind of being pushed into him and pulled into him. This wasn't the normal account of what human life was like and the ancient Near East at this time. But Jesus' presence is pulling these things in and, and coming, uh, uh, forcing them in. And as Matthew writes this biography of Jesus, he wants us to understand that this faith, this sort of trust, this sort of, uh, this sort of allegiance that we have to have to something, he wants us to see what it looks like to have a faith that's rightly, uh, that's put in the right place, that's rightly directed. A faith that's not going to let us down like the faith in technology, a faith that's going to give to us and provide for us what we need, what we want. And what he does is he tells us these stories of the power of faith through something like previews of what faith is capable of doing. We have these series of, of healings and demons being cast out. And in some senses, we're seeing in each one of these stories what faith looks like, what the right faith looks like, what saving faith, we might say, looks like. And that's sort of what I want to look at this morning. I want to first wrestle through this question of what does saving faith look like? And I'm going to give you four markers of it. And depending on how quickly people start to fall asleep, uh, eventually we'll wrap it up by wrestling through how does saving faith work. But I want to first wrestle through, I think Matthew's giving us these stories so we can get a picture of what saving faith looks like in real form, okay? These people are in crisis, and he's telling us, well, this is what saving faith, the faith that delivers, that gives you what you need, that gives you what you want. This is what it looks like. So first let's ask, what does saving faith look like, at least according to this passage, according to all these interactions? And this passage consists of four healings. Matthew's kind of bombarding us again with these rapid-fire healings. And what is the marker, or, or the distinguishing mark of the faith that we see, which results in these healings in, this, in these stories? Well, first we could say that each story depicts an element of desperation, you might say that saving faith always is accompanied by an element of desperation in your life. Where do we see this? Well, first we have this ruler who comes to Jesus, a man of high society. His daughter's dead. Do I need to make my case? I can't think of a more desperate situation. His well-loved daughter. And Jesus is on his way to heal this man's daughter as he's in the midst of this desperate situation. And on comes a woman who's so desperate. More than likely her menstrual cycles or some sort of internal bleeding has gone on her whole life. It's, it's marked her ritually unclean and societally dead. Everything she touched is unclean. Not to be too graphic, but it's all likelihood she probably smelled. She was distinguished from society. And in desperation, what does she do? Does she ask Jesus to be healed? No. She says, maybe if I could just touch that tassel. Maybe if I could just touch one of those fringes of his shorts. Then we got two blind men. It's hard enough being blind in our society in this day. This was as close as possible to being dead. And they're following Jesus. Now think about that. Blind person following Jesus. They don't have those like buttons that we have at the intersection to tell you when to walk, you know, with the beeps. 
Uh, this is a society where they're greatly disadvantaged. Likely friends are leading them along, but they are following Jesus and they're shouting at him, have mercy, son of David. They are desperate. And they follow him and follow him until they eventually get what they're looking for. And finally, we have this demonic, uh, this man possessed by a demon who can't speak, maybe also can't hear. Hard to know exactly what's being referred to here. But he's so desperate, he can't even say anything. And he's brought to Jesus. The faith that saves, that rescues us in the end, the faith that results in the healing for all four, in all four of these stories, is always marked by a measure of desperation. Always. Always. And this is why no matter how clean-cut a church looks, no matter how good everything looks, the church is always filled with addicts and liars, perverts, emotionally confused people, people suffering, sinners, desperate people. Because a mark of the faith that brings you to Jesus and that bonds you to Jesus, the type of faith that clings and holds tightly to Jesus, is a faith that is always accompanied by desperation. It reminds me, um, this week, we had weeks of hospitality, I guess last week, and I've learned a lesson uh, as a pastor for the past, I don't know, couple of years here in Toronto, that if you put a sign-up sheet for people to host weeks of hospitality, you say, would you like to host a meal in your home? There'll be an unending people who want to host. But if you put up a sign-up to ask people, would you like to be hosted, there's a little timidity. Who wants to come and bum a meal off somebody? Who wants to feel like, ugh, you know, I'm at someone else's mercy? You know, we know that saving faith is accompanied by a measure of desperation, but everything inside of us, especially in a city like ours, does not like feeling desperate. We don't even like free meals. We don't like feeling needy. And so if this is a mark of true saving faith, the type of faith that results in healing in these stories, and the type of faith that results in all things being made right, well in the end, in Jesus Christ then what stands in the way of you and what stands in the way of our neighbors really coming to know Jesus? Well, it shouldn't surprise us that a city that is filled with people who are quite content, quite self-confident, people flush with resources like us, we might find ourselves in a situation joining in with the Pharisees and saying, there's just no way this guy's doing this the right way. What is preventing you from bonding on and holding and clinging tighter to Christ than you currently are is that you just do not understand the desperateness of your situation. Not that you lack desperation. You just don't understand just how desperate your situation is. It's not that that the Lord has really actually given you all the resources necessary to sustain yourself and what prevents you from really clinging to Christ is that you just are just waiting for some tragedy to come your way. That'd be one way to think about this. The type of faith that saves is a faith that realizes just how incredibly desperate we are. That something has happened and that with our Creator, we are, we are at war. Things are not working correctly. All progress we make, like AI technology, exhibits some promise. But then in the end, for some reason, no matter what we do, the promise always begins to be overshadowed by a fear of the potential evil that could come. What am I trying to say? The faith that rescues, the faith that gets the healing, true saving faith, I think Matthew wants to see, is always accompanied by some measure of desperation. And don't be surprised if you look back in your spiritual life and say, when was I strongest in my faith? It's going to be after you heard that diagnosis, after you experienced that mistreatment. And don't be surprised that your neighbors ridicule you about your faith tell you to read books that in some sense is kind of mock your faith. 
But then when the diagnosis comes their way, don't be surprised if then those gentle discussions of Christianity and your hope in Christ become more easy, more straightforward. There's a measure of desperation that is always accompanied by saving faith, but it's not just desperation. What else do we see in these four stories? We also might say that saving faith always, always, the faith that, that, that rescues, that results in hearing, that healing, sorry, is always accompanied by some movements of risk, so, some, some risky behavior. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in each one of the stories. You have this ruler who comes to Jesus. This is a man of high society, and I don't know if, you know, you, you probably haven't memorized all the sermons in Matthew we preached up to this point. Not everyone at least hasn't. And, but you, you may remember that in high society hasn't liked Jesus. The religious establishment have, have not thought highly of Jesus. And here's a man, he's called a ruler, he comes to Jesus, high society has written Jesus off, he's probably sat around the dinner parties where they ridicule Jesus, but he's lost his daughter, and he has to do something risky, at risk to all of his status in society, he has to find Jesus. Saving faith, the type of faith that brings this healing, the type of faith that rescues, always involves something risky. This woman with the discharge of blood, what does she do? Maybe... I pretend like I just happen to be in the crowd, and maybe if no one sees me as the woman who is consistently and constantly unclean, just maybe I could touch the fringe of his garment. This is risky. The two blind men crying out, screaming, son of David. Time doesn't permit me to go into just how risky it is to say those words out loud, but here they are associating Jesus with the great King David, saying this is David's greater son, these two blind men. In a society where this might be counted as treason. For the demon-possessed one who can't speak, certainly someone had to bring him there. And they had to risk the presence of evil being brought into the presence of the one who's holy, who can make right. The faith that saves, that rescues in the end, always, always is marked by episodes of risk-taking, of boldness. Listen. There are people that I know, that you know, that find themselves in desperate situations where they find a lump on their body, okay? And what is the path with which they are going to find a way to be healed if this lump actually ends up being something more serious? What do they have to do? They have to do something that feels incredibly risky. They have to go to a doctor. They have to go through scans. They have to go through tests. And there are some people, and you and I both know them, who would rather have these markers, these, these dangerous markers on their body, who would rather not go to the doctor and pretend like they're not big of a deal than take the risk of going to the doctor and finding out that they have some cancer growing on their body. I think I, I can't be the only one who knows these kinds of people. Anytime you want help, anytime you want healing, there has to be an admission of some measure of desperation, of despair, and there has to be some kind of behavior which puts it on the line, which is risky. And that's what we see in all these stories. This is a marker of saving faith, a, a boldness, a willingness to say, I don't know what others are going to think. If I, if I start to follow this Jesus, and man, if I start to take it seriously, this is going to cause, this is going to be painful around the dinner table. My sister's not going to be okay with this. If I start buying into some of these ethics, will I be able to keep my job? Will I be able to sit on the boards I sit on? Will I be able to be the same type of neighbor I am? You see, anyone who moves towards Christ and says, heal me, rescue me, save me, deliver me, it will inevitably and always feel like moving towards something risky, moving towards something dangerous. The faith that saves is not only desperate, but is always accompanied by 
these movements which feel risky. What else could we say that saving faith looks like? Well, this story shows us that saving faith also has to be rooted in some kind of historical event which gives you hope. Now, it's not so obvious where we see this, but the most obvious is in these two blind men who refer to Jesus as the son of David, referring back to these promises that had come on David, that out of his lineage would become one who would be the true and final king, who would make all things right, who would defeat all the enemies, who would bring prosperity and peace that people had always longed for, what the Hebrew people call shalom. Holding on to these promises that were to David, these blind men now say, this is great David's greater son. And they cry out. They, they, they tag on. And it shouldn't surprise us that if you read the beginning of Matthew's gospel, how does it start? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the what? The son of David. Who are the first people to see clearly that Jesus is the son of David in this book? Two blind men. Not the elites, not the scholars, not the religious establishment. It's blind men, two of them, that realized maybe readings they had heard in the temple, readings they had heard in the synagogue, this is great David's greater son. This is his greater descendant. This is the one through whom the blessings are going to flow. But you know, there's something else there, because how else would the ruler know to come to Jesus when his daughter died? Or how would the woman have known to come to Jesus and just touch him? when she wants to be healed of her flow of blood? Or how would the friend with the demon-possessed mute person know to go to Jesus? You see, these people had to have heard. They had to have known or, or maybe even witnessed or saw Jesus acting within history to be the Savior that they had longed for. And when they saw these events within history, they cling on to the hope that what was true for another can be true for them. What was true at one point in time can be true in their present experience. That rootedness, that, that sort of grasp of historical events and promises is what carries on their faith to Jesus. And this is why saving faith is always accompanied by, are rooted in a deep hope in the promises that God gave. The faith that saves in the end, the faith that brings healing not just of temporary diseases, but final salvation, making of all things right, brings peace to all things. It's not just wishful thinking or projections of humanity's greatest hope. It's not just a faith in something like a fairy tale ending where everyone lives happily ever, ever after. It's not just positive visualizations of a brighter future where all is made well. The faith that saves is a faith that hears of things that have happened in history in real space and time. And though you don't exist in that space and time, holds on to the hope that what was true for another can be true of you. This is why saving faith involves a measure of trust, a belief that for these stories, that Jesus could deliver them from the predicament they found themselves in. For our story, wherever you find yourself in, and whatever humanity as a whole finds ourselves in, that the promises that Jesus has made, that God has made in Jesus to make all things new, to wipe away every tear, to fix all that is broken. That those promises, which we get little glimpses of in the healing of this daughter, in the healing of the blind men, uh, of, of this woman's blood being discharged, that those little, little previews, we hold on to those things and say, this is true also for us. The Lord will make all things right in Christ. And that's why saving faith is not just desperate, okay? It's not just it's not just risky. It also lays hold of promises, of historical events, and, and promises that are made that are trustworthy. How could I illustrate this? You know, there's a reason why. There's a reason why we don't pay contractors 100% up front is because we've all learned our, rec our, our lesson. You know, you pay for the products up front, 
but you pay the rest at the delivery of the project. Why? Because you know enough people who've been given their word that something will happen, and then the person runs off with the money. There's no trust that this person will deliver. What saving faith looks like is a deep trust that the God who made himself known in Jesus Christ will deliver on the promises that came in real space and time, that he will deliver. And it's a holding on to those trusts and those promises and a willingness to pay 100% up front, to throw yourself fully on this Jesus. The faith that saved is marked by knowing God's previous actions within history. All these people we read about in the story probably had heard stories of God delivering his people from Egypt. More than likely heard stories of God rescuing his people in, in tight predicaments. And they clang on and held on to the fact that their God was a rescuer. And here they were with their back against the wall and they trusted that God would rescue. And so in doing, in doing, they found the healing that they longed for. The faith that saves comes to the desperate, comes to those willing to take risks, but they are informed risks. They are risks that are made trusting in the character of one greater. Saving faith is marked by desperation, risk-taking, and holds on to historical promises. But maybe I'll give a fourth observation from these stories, because there's four stories, so four observations seem fitting. Um, another mark of saving faith in here seems to be that saving faith is always imperfect. It's always imperfect. And this might be words of comfort to many of you. Where do I see this? Well, we already know from previous stories in, in Matthew's gospel that Jesus doesn't actually have to come and touch for someone to be healed, right? Remember the centurion? He can heal from afar. He can do long-distance heals, you know? And so when this ruler comes and he's begging that Jesus would touch, as though Jesus' touch is almost like the waving of a magic wand, we realize he doesn't fully understand the power of Jesus yet. His faith is incomplete. It's, it's imperfect. And the blind men, I mean, they know that Jesus is, the, is great David's greater son, the son of David, and yet, what do we see of their faith? They come to Jesus hoping for sight. How, how well do they hold on to his word right afterwards when he says, hey, don't tell anyone. It's not my time. How do they do? They blab around to everybody. <laughs> they trusted Jesus, but they didn't, they didn't trust his word at this particular moment. You see, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, that in each one of these cases, each one of these cases, we have a, we have a faith that is imperfect. It's incomplete. It's, it's immature. And the Pharisees see that. And that's why at the end of this passage, the Pharisees say, not good enough. Sure, he casts out a demon, but he must be casting out demons by the prince of demons. He must be casting out demons by Satan. But these stories, I think Matthew's left them in here for you and for me to realize. No matter how imprecise and immature no matter how weak even your faith is. It's not the degree of your faith that is important. Matthew keeps making this lesson to us over and over again. It's not the seriousness of your faith. I said it a couple of weeks ago. It's not the, the strength with which you close your eyes and say, I believe. It's not the ability with which you can convince yourself and erase all doubts from your mind, which ultimately results in being rescued and being saved. No. Matthew says, here's the immature, the incomplete. This woman's bordering on superstitious, just hoping she could touch the garb. What happens? They get healed. Listen, no one had more faith in the safety of the Titan submarine than the CEO of OceanGate, Stockton Rush. All kinds of videos online about him talking about how great his submarine was. 
And on that Titan submarine, you know, there was another young man, Suleiman Daywood, who we were told from his mother a couple weeks ago was terrified to go on that submarine, had very little faith. You see, the degree of their faith made no difference as to their rescue from the situation they found themselves in when that submarine imploded. All that mattered was the object of their faith. Strong faith, weak faith, doesn't matter. Both don't make it out alive. Matthew was trying to make the same point to you and to me. He's trying to make this point that it's not the degree or the strength with which you believe. It's who you reach out towards, who you cling on to, who you put your hope in, your faith in, your trust in. These are the stocks that pay out. These are the investments which give dividend and continue to grow. It's the object of your faith. The faith that is, save, that is saving faith is aimed at the right object. And in this passage, you're seeing so many reasons to believe Jesus is the right object of your faith today. No matter what temporal sufferings you're going through now, or no matter how hopeless you feel, this passage is saying Jesus is the one you need to aim your faith towards. Look at him. Look at, the, look at the verbs used to describe Jesus in this passage. He's a man who has come to rescue. Verse 19, he gets up and he follows this ruler. After he's touched by this woman, he turns and he sees her. He doesn't have to do this. He enters the ruler's house, verse 23. He goes into the room of the girl and he gently takes her, verse 25. He speaks to the blind men, verse 28. He touches their eyes, verse 29. And look how it ends. The two blind men walk out of the room, seeing 2020. The crowds marvel because their categories are stretched. This is a man. This is a man, no matter how confused you are about him, is worth putting your faith and trust in. And yet the Pharisees say he must be doing this by Satan. Matthew wants us to see, and he's making this point over and over again. Don't wait until your faith makes perfect sense. Cry aloud now to Jesus. Look to Jesus now in suffering and confusion in doubts and in frustration and in addiction. Point to him and say, heal me, I believe. Help my unbelief. Bring light to my eyes. That's exactly what he'll do. I want to end by asking, how does saving faith work? And I'll be brief here. How does saving faith work? It works this way. It works by Jesus seeing us in our moment of despair and desperation and saying, I'll take it on myself. It works by him looking at this ruler and even seeing that girl dead and saying, I'll die. I'll die. I don't want her to. I'll die. It looks like seeing that woman with that discharge of blood, not necessarily her personal fault, but the result of a world that has been marred by sin, and him saying, look, I'll bleed. I'll bleed for this one. This is how saving faith works. As you reach out to Christ, as you put your hope, your faith, your trust into him, he looks down at you in your humble estate, and he says, I'll rescue. I'll take it. I'll take the punishment. I'll take the debt. I will. I really will. I'll do it for you. I will. And this side of the death of Christ and the resurrection, what we know is the way saving faith works is this. That life that Jesus led, a life of constant obedience to his heavenly Father, faithfulness in all that he did, that life then becomes the means by which we are rescued from a life of constant disobedience, constant rebellion, a life marked by death and decay is replaced and we're given life and life unending because he looks at us and he says, I'll die for this one. I'll die for you. I'll take your punishment for you. The consequences you've caused to this earth, they're really bad. You've harmed a lot of people by what you've done and by what you've left undone. I'll take the consequences. I'll take it. And he takes them for you. 
And this becomes the hope of the gospel. This is, these, listen, this, girl's, this girl in the story, you do understand she dies again. You know, she lays on her deathbed and she dies again. This woman who's healed of her discharge of blood, she's restored to community, but she dies as well. The blind men, they have a funeral. This, de- this uh, demonic person who unable to speak, he speaks up, but eventually he dies as well. You see, these are just previews. That Jesus is saying, look, this, this is how rescuing works. You put your faith, you put your trust in me, the right object, no matter how weak and immature it might be, and I give you everything, and I take everything from you, and I give you all that is mine. And this is the hope of the gospel. This is what we come together every week to celebrate. Throw yourself, even if you're plagued with doubts right now, and even if you know it comes at great risk, throw yourself on this Jesus. Ask him to rescue you. Ask, you, ask him to save you, and you will find him to be a faithful savior. Let me pray. Our Lord, we thank you for these healings we find constantly in the the ministry of of Jesus as recorded by Matthew. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son not only to be for us some sort of example of what we could have been and to exhibit your consistent disappointment in us by him being perfect and us being failures, but he came for us to be a Savior, to take upon ourselves all our infirmities and all of our sins and sicknesses and doubts and pains and rebellion. He came to take it all, all the punishment of it all, and to undo it in himself, to absorb it himself. And so, Father, we now, as collectively as a church, look by faith to Christ and say He's our only hope. He, he really is our only hope to get through this week, to get through the days that are to come. And we thank You for what Christ has done for us. As we come now, Father, to think of this table, we ask You would nourish us in Christ's name and give to us all that's Christ's, we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.